You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The problem with politics today is that it's discussed in a vacuum. Nobody brings up the history behind today's events. Why well, do? In my podcast, I take today's politics and smash them, bash them with a dose of history. The politics come out different, and you come out with a better understanding. I'm Bruce Carlson. Join me. The history beats up on politics. In a small, little frequented museum in Miami sits an empty railroad car that at one time played an unlikely role in a drama that captivated the American imagination and changed our view of politics and possibilities. A role that to this day keeps stale elections fresh and imbues in even the most skeptical reporters an inkling that politics is volatile, can change at any time. And there's always the possibility that an underdog can come back and win in an American election. The Ferdinand Magellan, now just the headline attraction of the Florida Gold Coast Railroad Museum, was a presidential car built by the Pullman Company for Franklin Roosevelt, featuring in its rear platform a place where the president could come out and give remarks. The Ferdinand Magellan was most famously used by Harry S. Truman in his victorious 21,928-mile, 350-speech whistle-stop campaign of 1948, a campaign that electrified the nation. The combative appearances Truman made on the back of the railroad car captured the popular imagination, drew huge, spontaneous, and real, not set up, crowds. Voters loved this feisty president and his attacks on the Republican Congress of the time. And if they had been open to it, these massive, mostly spontaneous gatherings were an important sign of a critical change in a momentum in the campaign. A change that went virtually unnoticed by the nation's press corps. Not a single poll in 1948 called the election for Harry Truman. Not a single pundit called the election for Harry Truman. The New York Times called Thomas Dewey, the governor of New York and the Republican Party's candidate, all but president. The Gallup poll called it for Dewey, and yet Truman won. And he would have his famous scene where he held up the Chicago Daily Tribune that said, Dewey beats Truman, when in fact the opposite was true. The polls got it all wrong. Harry Truman, as a result of his campaign on the Ferdinand Magellan had defied politics, pundits, and polls. The message of this now-silenced railroad car in that 1948 election would seem to be, damn the polls, there's always hope. The Truman legend is a great one, and like many legends, it has a good moral. Never give up in politics. Fast forward to four years later, 1952. National polls were once again turning against Harry S. Truman. Polls gave him just a 36% approval rating. Only 35% of Democrats polled wanted him to run for re-election. 
a young upstart senator from Tennessee, Estes Kefauver, was running higher than Truman among independents, national. In this case, the polls were right. They showed trouble for Truman, and they predicted Kefauver's win over Harry Truman, the sitting president, in the New Hampshire primary. After Truman's loss in the New Hampshire primary, Truman decided not to run for another term. And polls would once again correctly predict a win for Dwight D. Eisenhower over Adelaide Stevenson. The legend of Harry Truman defying the polls in 1948 is great. But the story of 1952, where the polls basically got it right, is rarely told. And in fact, the very problem with the polling of 1948 was not that too much polling was done, or so much that the polling was wrong, but perhaps that too little polling was done. One month before the election, the pollsters were all so sure that Thomas Dewey would win that they decided to take no more polls. In October of 1948, Fortune magazine took Roper's poll results and wrote, Due to the overwhelming evidence of Mr. Roper's fifth pre-election survey in recent months and figures given, Fortune and Mr. Roper plan no further detailed reports and change of opinion in the forthcoming presidential campaign. Had they continued, it's likely that in October they would have picked up in their research trends favoring Truman. But they stopped. Today, no polling outfit would think of stopping polling in November. And polls permeate our politics. So what to make of them? Are they ruining politics as we know them today? Or is it the case that public opinion has always been part of our politics? And a good American politician both listens to and ignores the polls. Let's start off by asking how far back do polls go? The ancestor of today's scientific surveys, the Gallup, for instance, are the straw polls, derived from the term of a farmer who apparently used to throw straw up in the air and see which way the wind was blowing. The Harrisburg, Pennsylvania newspaper is widely acknowledged to have conducted in 1824 first presidential preference poll. The poll revealed that Andrew Jackson had a commanding 70% lead 335 votes over Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. The history of American public opinion as, as part of the political process goes back further. Concern for public opinion, the very idea that there is a broad public opinion that anyone would acknowledge the existence of or care to describe or measure, seems to go back as early as 1588 when the phrase public opinion appears in French manuscripts. But it really belongs to that period known as the Enlightenment, that time in European life when logic and reason became masters of dogma and religion, and kings that claimed to rule by religious right were resisted. Rulers were only as good as the government they gave. And so the idea of measuring the public to see if they liked what the government was giving out was prioritized. And the Enlightenment, of course, was the inspiration for our founding fathers, and our nation, to a certain extent, was an experiment the very tail end of that enlightenment. We're in a country that in Jefferson's writings is based on the advice and consent of the governed. A total reverse of true monarchy, which is the wishes of one with the advice and consent of whoever he chooses. The ratification of the Constitution that has made up our country was based on seeking out public opinion. Though it was not an open vote, 
the Constitution was ratified by a two-thirds majority vote of special citizen conventions of the 13 states, designed to eliminate politics of the period and go over the heads of the state legislators. We are, in a sense, the United States of public opinion. The very document that started us was created by it, insisted on it for its very approval. So let's examine. Early leaders were obviously concerned with public opinion. But since the first scientific polls came with the advent of market research for consumer products in the 1930s, how did people like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, or even, say, Abe Lincoln and William Howard Taft measure public opinion? Well, to start, the newspapers were good, if not scientific measures of public opinions, so many different parts of the country, as well as all the informal pamphlets that would be distributed. Looking at what is being circulated was a good way to go. Presidents of the past followed the newspaper medium with all the urgency of Bill Clinton reading his polls. And parties, both Whig and Democrat, Republican, had large armies of canvassers that would survey and report back. Now, of course, they weren't Gallup men by any means. Once they took a thermometer and how a person was thinking, their job was still convincing that person to vote for the candidate. But they were always reporting back to the top. Aaron Burr worked up such a political machine in New York in the 1790s, such a good one that he was invited to be Thomas Jefferson's vice president, though Jefferson wasn't incredibly fond of him. In many ways, the polls that mattered in those days were the polls of the people who were going to go out and get votes for you. Outside of newspapers and party canvases, Lincoln also relished the visits he would get from all sorts of people walking into the White House. He called them public opinion baths. And he seized upon the opportunity to get differing opinions from real people. No, presidents past did not wait for the Gallup poll to be invented to consider public opinion. Most of history shows your average presence to be just as considerate of public opinion in those days as modern presidents are today. For President James Madison, consideration of public opinion may have gone too far. History now judges his disastrous launch of the War of 1812 as a terrible mistake, which resulted in defeat for armies, no territorial gain, and the sacking and burning of Washington, D.C. Madison's rush to war was no doubt caused by excessive concern for public opinion, especially where votes for his party, the Democratic-Republican Party, could be found in the South and in the West. He eagerly pushed a war that would involve taking land from the British in Canada, which Westerners wanted, and from the Spanish, who were allied with the British, who owned Florida. And that was something the Southerners wanted. Now, the British had committed real crimes against Americans, and they were engaged in a blockade on American shipping. But Madison had already engaged in a boycott of British trade that was having a real impact. In fact, the boycott coincided with a poor grain harvest in England and a growing need for American provisions to supply British troops fighting Napoleon. As a result, June 16, 1812, the British foreign minister announced that England would stop the blockade on American shipping. Had there been cooler heads and modern communications, perhaps, war might have been averted. President Madison had declared war on June 1st, 15 days before the British gave in. But in the election year of 1812, he'd only given his boycott a few months to work. He did, by the way, go on to beat Federalist candidate DeWitt Clinton 
and win re-election, despite some of the disasters of the war. Thomas Jefferson was a founding father who was overly concerned with public opinion. But he certainly took no poll to make the Louisiana Purchase a massive use of federal power that was really in contrast to the small government principles he had espoused and the principles of his Democrat-Republican Party. If you were a radical abolitionist from the North during the Civil War, you would have been quite frustrated by this poll-driven politician, Abraham Lincoln. Probably would have found him oversensitive to the public opinion in border states such as Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, and Maryland. Why did he insist on being so cautious about the war's aims? Why did he continually say the war wasn't about slavery, but merely about preserving the Union? Why was he so concerned with not offending the pro-Union border states? But when Lincoln felt the moment was right, he changed course, and he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves in the rebellious states. Abraham Lincoln made an unpopular decision that cost him dearly in the 1862 congressional elections, sending many peace Democrats to Congress and electing Democratic governors in New Jersey and New York. That Abraham Lincoln knew public opinion was against him is evidenced by the fact that he waited for a major battle to be won in order to make his announcements for the Emancipation Proclamation. And lacking a great victory, he settled for the kind of tie that occurred in the Battle of Antietam, where the rebel army was driven out of Maryland. Wasn't a victory, wasn't a loss. Waited for that moment to make the announcement, and Lincoln split it in two parts. An announcement to be made in September of 1862, but actual proclamation to be made early in 1863, so that there was a cooling off period of public opinion. Moving into the 20th century. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. John F. Kennedy facing a unique challenge as a Roman Catholic at a time when many Protestants would not support him, used polls to determine where he would take his campaign tour. 
Based on the results of opinion polls, Kenny decided to eliminate 30 states from his campaign schedule based on the level of public concern about his Catholicism, focusing his time and resources on states where it would be better received. Kennedy also used polls to advocate issues. He found that only 30% of families were sending children to college, but 80% had hopes of doing so, so he campaigned on that issue around the country. Bill Clinton was a polaholic, famous for asking for a poll on where to take vacation, what pet to get, and whether to reveal his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Now, some of these over-excesses in polls may represent Bill Clinton's political personality, always seeking input. Some of the excesses may be the result of his fanatical pollster and very public man, Dick Morris. But Bill Clinton also took some unpopular decisions on Bosnia, where only 40% of people supporting sending troops in Kosovo, where most of the country uh, didn't want war. Bill Clinton made decisions contrary to public opinion on a Mexican bailout, where the use of U.S. funds to bail out a country was not popular at all. Clinton persisted in taking the action. And all three of these policies bore out with good results. Polls don't have a good reputation in American culture. We like strong, decisive presidents. And therefore, it's always been seen as kind of good to be anti-poll. And many politicians have taken such stances, though not always with good results. Winston Churchill said, Nothing is more dangerous than to live in the temperamental atmosphere of a Gallup poll, always taking one's temperature. There's only one duty, only one safe course, and that is to be right and not to fear to do or say what you believe is right. Yet, right after World War II was over, his conservative party was defeated. I wonder, Truman once said, how far Moses would have gone if he'd taken a poll in Egypt. It isn't polls or a public opinion of the moment that counts, Truman said. It's right and wrong. But Truman had serious problems with public opinion in his second term. Jimmy Carter was famously a president that was against polls, a president who had built himself up from school board to the White House, with few people ever believing in him. So when he came to become president... He wasn't inclined to always follow opinion polls. One early issue, the Panama Canal Treaty, had very little public support. But Jimmy Carter made it a priority, thinking it was the right idea. As Jimmy Carter said in a recent Hardball interview, he was under tremendous pressure to attack Iran during the hostage crisis. In his own words, he says it would have made him popular. And of course, he said, that was one of the things that was offered to me. But I, you know, I thought about it a lot. And I finally decided that if I did attack Iran, I could have destroyed Iran with our weaponry. There's no question about that. But our hostages would have been lost. And tens of thousands of innocent Iranians would have been lost. And all the troops that we sent there subsequently, many of them would have been casualties. I think I made the right decision, Jimmy Carter said. Ford ignored polls that showed... His move was politically disastrous and pardoned Nixon. Ford gave many speeches about his action, always making a point that what mattered to him was the country and not the polls. But yet this action probably cost him another term. Though most historians agree, pardoning Nixon might have been the right move. The current occupant of the White House is at least in public against poll-driven government. Social Security plan was launched despite poll numbers against it. And he continues to make the decision to stay the course in Iraq despite broad popular disapproval. 
Now, despite his public statements, the Bush White House does employ large amounts of pollsters. Washington Monthly analysis of Republican National Committee disbursements uh, in 2001 shows that Bush's pollsters received 346,000. Free of influence from polls, these type of presidents seem to be able to tap into certain likes of the American public for a temporary period of time. Carter with his I will not lie to you plainness. Truman with his 48 whistle stop. Ford with his national nightmares over and healing. Bush with his post-September 11th popularity. And in many cases, they make some good decisions, but eventually public opinion catches up. And being the anti-poll guy just doesn't seem to work in politics. One of the reasons we seem to hate polls so much is that we think they're wrong. But history doesn't really bear that out. 1948 was an example when the polls got it wrong. But from 1952 to 2000, the Gallup poll, for instance, was wrong only twice, giving a one-point victory to Ford over Jimmy Carter in 1976. But that one-point victory, 49 to 48, was well within its published margin of error. And in the 2000 election, the Gallup poll showed a two-point victory for George W. Bush, who would not win the popular vote which is what the poll is measuring. Still, take those stats, and from 1952 to 2004, the polls were off twice. That's an 85% success rate in presidential elections. Not bad at all, especially when you consider that the two eras were close. Certainly better than the straw polls of old. And the eras of polls seem to be in the close races. Polls aren't as scientific as we've seen as voters to like them to be. But that's an argument to make polls better, not to discard them. The weakness of polls are mostly in the expectation. The Gallup polls picked a winner 11 out of 13 times since 1948. But it's been off as much as 4 or 5% in the amount of the win. In off-year, low-turnout races, polls can be terribly flawed due to the enhanced need to predict, in such a low-turnout atmosphere, likely voters something that every polling outfit does differently, and that is proprietary information. Pollster John Zogby said that determination of likely voters hurt his polls in 2002. He admitted that his congressional election forecasts for that year were off the mark because he had concentrated on changing voting patterns in black and Latino communities and severely underestimated the Republican get-the-vote-out effort. Why else do Americans hate polls? Well, we also hate polls because we we hate the idea of a president making decisions based on polls. But throughout American history, presidents have made strong decisions in the face of public opinion. And the advent of scientific polling in the 1930s really hasn't changed that. FDR still participated before the war in the Lend-Lease program to help England, despite people being rabidly anti-internationalist in the late 1930s. Ford pardoned Nixon despite little popular support for that action. Jimmy Carter, as mentioned before, pursued the Panama Canal Treaty, which was not the first priority of, of the nation. Clinton sent troops to Bosnia, and Bush, despite popular approval, wrong or right, continues to advocate a strong position in Iraq. Presence of polls does not seem to have changed at all the actions of American presidents. The other problem Americans have in polls is the supposed bandwagon effect. In other words, 
A poll will allegedly encourage voters to support the candidate leading in the poll and discourage voters who support the trailing candidate. The problem with the theory of the bandwagon effect is that it doesn't appear that real voters behave that way or pay much attention to polls at all. Most studies show that there is no bandwagon effect. Look at 1948. Polls showed Truman down, polling even stopped, and still people came out to vote. In 2000, polls showed Bush slightly ahead, yet the popular vote came out for Gore. In 1996, polls showed a much larger vote for President Clinton than he got, about 4% in some polls, showing Dole's lead as low as 37%. Yet it didn't stop Dole voters from coming out. In the end, Dole's vote was 41%. However, polls can influence who's getting money, and that can have some secondary effects. As Nixon once said, I know when the polls are up because the cash registers start ringing. So if a candidate's very low in the polls, particularly in a crowded field, let's say the beginning of a primary, yes, bad polls for that candidate will lead to more bad polls. Still, without polls, it seems likely there would be other informal methods of weeding out these candidates. Here's the lessons I think history tells us about the current trend of polling in politics. Polls themselves are not new, and they're not bad. The theory behind measuring public opinion goes back to some very good bedrock philosophies that founded our nation. Polls are just an attempt to do what we've always done better. And if there are problems with polls, because expectations are greater than what current polls can deliver, especially in close elections. Well, presidents shouldn't follow polls to decide every decision, just like James Madison shouldn't have used public opinion to decide on a war policy before the age of polls. Most presidents don't use polls in, in the way that it's commonly described. History is replete with examples of courageous presidents making strong decisions all through the era of scientific voting. Polls are not our enemies. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.